This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, as I mentioned, my name is James. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you uh, after the gathering. Please do come and say hello, introduce yourself. Uh, We are in the middle of a series called Yahweh, where we are looking at the I Am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. And so the context for this series is going back to the book of Exodus, when Moses was called to go to Egypt and to help deliver God's people from Pharaoh. And Moses said to the burning bush, as God was speaking through the burning bush, who should I say has sent me when I go and do this? And God said, say that I am has sent you. And so we are looking at the I am statements of Jesus, as we believe Jesus reveals to us who God is. And so why don't you join me in prayer? And let's pray as we get into the message for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your kindness, uh, all the little gifts and things, blessings that we have been able to enjoy even this morning, Lord. We thank you that you are a loving God, that you are a personal God who speaks to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we come before you now, Lord, as we open your word, that you might speak. We thank you that this is not something that you do because I request it, but it is something you do because it is what you have promised to do. And so, Lord, speak to us now through your spirit, through your word. God, I pray that this message would be a message of hope and comfort for those who need to hear it, a message of faith and assurance for those who need to be strengthened today. Uh, God, just let me be your vessel. Speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'm preaching to you from John chapter 11 on a message called Stronger Than Death. Stronger Than Death. And we're going to get pretty serious pretty quickly. A couple of weeks ago, uh, it was the one-year anniversary of my grandfather passing away. Uh, One year ago, a few weeks ago, he was the patriarch of our family. Uh, We affectionately called him Gong Gong. He was 97 years old, the last of my grandparents. To be honest, when he passed away last year, it hit me a lot harder than I thought it would. Uh, Grief hit me pretty hard. And I spent a good number of weeks and months mourning his death. I remember sitting in a cafe with a good friend, just saying, I don't, like, I don't understand what's going on inside of me. Like what I feel, why I'm feeling just down randomly. I'll start to feel sad. Uh, and upon reflection, I realized that I didn't really mourn my other grandparents in the same way. Uh, two of my grandparents on my father's side I lived in Malaysia my whole life, and so I visited them a couple of times every five years or so, but I didn't really know them, didn't really have close relationship with them. Uh, My grandmother, who lived in Sydney, uh, died when I was about 12, and so I think I was just a little bit too young to really properly grasp and process what was going on. Uh, It didn't really seem to affect me very much at the time. 
Anyhow, a couple of weeks ago, my mom sent a message in our family chat. She reminded us that it was coming up to the one-year anniversary of my grandpa passing away, and I felt compelled to visit his grave. Uh, so we drove out there a few weeks ago after church, and uh, I spent some time at the site of his grave. Savvy was asleep in the car, and so I jumped out, went over to the grave. Katie just kept driving around in circles to keep Savvy asleep. I didn't really have a plan. I didn't really know what it was going to be like uh, when I got there, uh, but I knew just it was something that I wanted to do. And so when I got there, I sat down in front of his grave, and he's buried next to my grandma. It's really beautiful. Uh, and I just started weeping. I just started crying. Uh, in some ways, it was really cathartic, I think is the word. And I spoke to him as if he was right there. Um, but also I knew that like, you know, his body, his, his life wasn't in his body. So it was kind of weird as well. And, uh, you know, death can be a confusing thing. It can be a confronting thing. And as we open up God's Word to John chapter 11 today, this is the topic that we're dealing with, the topic of death. There's really no kind of easy way to slide into it and make it feel more comfortable to talk about. Life after death, that's the question. Uh, it was the founding, one of the founding fathers of the United States, Benjamin Franklin, who famously said, uh, you may have heard the quote, the only two certainties in life a death and taxes. And the question for us this morning is, if death is one of the certainties of life, is there hope beyond the grave? Is there hope beyond the grave? And not in a platitude sense, you know, like you might think, well, yeah, James, obviously I'm in a church today, so there's hope beyond the grave sermon finished. But no, not. I want us to grapple with this, not in a platitude sense, not in the sense of warm but empty sentiment that kind of makes us feel warm and fuzzy, but then we forget the next minute. Not in the sense of wishful thinking, but is there actual, real, tangible, substantial hope that we can hold on to? Is there a hope beyond the grave that we can anchor our souls to? that has the power to truly carry us through the difficulties of this life and, and the grief of loss and the darkness of death? I believe the answer is yes. And so my aim this morning as we look at John chapter 11 is, is to point you towards that hope. Whether for the first time, perhaps for the hundredth time that you may believe. So if you have a Bible, then open up with me. John chapter 11, we're going to be going through the story together. It's a long narrative, and so you want to have your Bible open. There'll be verses up on the screen behind me as well. And we're going to kind of split today's message up into three scenes as we walk through this narrative and seek to answer this question. So John chapter 11, come with me. Let's immerse ourselves in this story. John 11 chapter, sorry, John chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 2, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord 
and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. We'll pause there. So the narrative today, it begins and Jesus has been doing his ministry. He's just been preaching and he's just made that claim about how he is the good shepherd, which Matt preached on last week from John chapter 10. And Jesus here receives word that Lazarus, his friend, the brother of Mary and Martha, who you might remember from Luke's gospel as being the two sisters who hosted Jesus at their home. Their brother Lazarus is seriously unwell. Mary, it said here in verse 2, is the same woman who famously took an expensive bottle of perfume and broke it and washed Jesus' feet with it. Other scholars say that this family, these siblings, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they would have been like extended family to Jesus, right? So we're setting the scene here, and they're close to Jesus, this family. And when Jesus hears that Lazarus is unwell, he responds. Verse 4, what does he say? He says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So on a first reading, this seems like great news, right? Uh, Jesus has heard that Lazarus is sick. The sisters have sent word, and Jesus is like, well, it's all good, this sickness, it's not going to end in death. No, it's going to be for God's glory. All good. This, this would seem like good news for Lazarus. After all, Jesus has just said, well, he's, he's not going to die from it. So it seems like everything is rosy. Jesus is just going to hop in the car and mosey on down over to Lazarus and heal him. Or does he? Or does he? Let's keep reading verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he went over to him. No, no, it says, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Hang on a minute. What is Jesus doing here? He's just received word that his friend, his brother even, Lazarus, is sick. He said, it's all good. The sickness isn't going to end in death. But then he decides to stay where he is for two more days instead of going straight to Lazarus to heal him. Now, you wouldn't be the only one if you thought to yourself, this seems like a strange response. Like if you were to hear that your loved one was seriously ill, like if you were a doctor, what would you do? You'd go straight away to help treat them. Or if you were a loved one, you'd go straight to their side to be with them because maybe you're not too sure how much time they have left. But Jesus doesn't do that. He stays where he is two more days. Where is Jesus' sense of urgency? You have to ask yourself, what is Jesus doing? Surely his decision-making would have puzzled not only his disciples, but also Mary and Martha, who you have to remember, they've sent this word out to Jesus. 
So they are probably expecting Jesus is going to receive this news and come over. So where is he? What is he doing? Let's keep reading and find out. Verse 11. Jump down to verse 11 with me. After Jesus had said this, he went on to tell them, that is his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly. I love this, right? Guys, you don't get it. You think he's asleep. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So what's happened is two days, the two days that Jesus has waited, they've passed. And he is still with his disciples and he decides, okay, let's begin the journey to Lazarus's home in Judea. He has an amusing exchange with his disciples who think that Jesus's use of the word sleep is literal. To be fair, can you blame them? Jesus, why being so cryptic? And then he lets them and us know one of the reasons why he has waited for Lazarus to die before going to him. I wonder, did you catch it there? Verses 14 and 15, have a look. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. See, Jesus says he's glad he wasn't there when Lazarus was sick so that the disciples might believe. See, if Jesus was there while Lazarus was still alive, he could have healed him on the spot. We know that Jesus can heal. He's already done that multiple times in this gospel. But now that Lazarus is dead, Jesus has an opportunity to perform a miracle that will ultimately result in the strengthening of the disciples' faith. Now, this isn't the only reason why Jesus has not prioritized healing Lazarus. I wonder if you saw the other reason back in verse 4. Come back with me to verse 4. Jesus says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So Jesus, in this passage, he lets us know the two reasons why he has delayed going to heal Lazarus, why he has perhaps even allowed Lazarus to die over this time. He says two things. He says, firstly, I'm going to use this to strengthen the disciples' belief in me. Secondly, he says, this miracle is going to glorify God. You see, Jesus' actions, they tell us that in this particular situation, there is a bigger picture going on. There is a bigger picture that his disciples and even Mary and Martha cannot see. One that they are not aware of. You see, sometimes we don't know what God is doing. Sometimes we have a pressing need in our lives that we are 
praying for, that we have put before God as a request. And it just seems like he's taking so long to answer our prayers. It just seems like he's taking so long to meet us in our trouble and in our distress. There were acute moments in our lives where God seems to be delaying. Maybe even right now. Where are you, God? What are you doing in this moment? Haven't you heard my cry for help? Didn't you receive my prayer request? Why are you taking so long? See, this passage reminds us that our vision is limited. We see things only with a limited human perspective, but God knows and sees things that we don't. It's like we're characters in a book. We're characters in a book, and we only know the scene that we're in, but God is the author who who sits behind the book, who's written the whole plot. He sees the bigger picture, and he's driving the story towards a desired end. You see, this passage shows us that sometimes God will act or God will respond in ways that are seemingly different to how we think he should. But maybe his absence isn't an indication that he has abandoned you. Maybe his seeming absence, only by our perspectives, is an indication that he is doing something bigger. That he is doing something more glorious than we realize. But of course... Mary and Martha aren't privy to the mind of Jesus. They don't know the perfect will of God, and so they don't know what he's up to. And so understandably, when Jesus arrives, they are upset. They are upset that their brother has died before Jesus has arrived. Pick up the story with me in verse 20. It says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Verse 23, listen to this claim. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And so Jesus arrives and Martha comes out to meet him. Mary stays at home and perfectly understandably, she is upset. Jesus, where have you been? Lord, notice there's still respect. There's still reverence and honor in her recognition of who he is, but also there's pain, right? She's human. She's only human. I don't understand, Lord. If, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds to Martha's lament by telling her that Lazarus will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will. And just in case you're wondering, no, Martha doesn't know what's about to happen. She doesn't know the miracle that's about to take place. But it was a common belief among the Jews in the afterlife. The Jews, and particularly the Pharisees, did believe in life after death, the resurrection of the dead. 
And so Martha mistakenly thinks Jesus is referring to that last day. She thinks Jesus is saying, it's okay, Martha, you will see him again one day at the end. And Martha says, yes, I know, because I, I also believe that. And to Martha's response, Jesus makes his most extraordinary, astonishing claim to date. Verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. There it is. Perhaps the most weighty claim that Jesus can make the most dramatic and profound I am statement that he's made up to this point in the Gospel of John. I like as the NLT translation puts it, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And Martha's response models the faith and the belief that Jesus has just said that this claim requires, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And we'll get to Jesus' claim in just a moment, but I want to just hone in on Martha's response here. This is the type of response that Jesus is after. Not a display of Martha's good works or her morality or her accumulated righteousness, not some kind of show that she is religious or good enough. No, just believe. Do you believe, Jesus says. Martha says, yes, Lord. But even in her belief, even in her faith, Martha still doesn't know what Jesus is about to do. And so following this conversation, Martha goes and gets Mary, and Mary comes out to Jesus, and she has a very similar conversation, a very similar exchange with Jesus, lamenting her brother's death. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And this time, a whole crowd of Jews who have been weeping with the sisters, because death in those times was not a privatized, individualistic affair. No, it was a communal affair. The whole community would come out and weep and mourn with you. And so this time, as opposed to just one of the sisters, Jesus gets Mary and a whole crowd of Jews who've been weeping and mourning, and they follow her out to Jesus. And in verse 33, we have this profound scene. Verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I want to read that again. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Verse 34. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. We're going to pause and camp out here for just a moment. So I want to unpack this scene with you guys. You see, this is a remarkable part of the narrative. Because we see here the humanity, the heart and the compassion of Jesus fully on display. And I don't know what your view of God is. I don't know who you believe God is, what He's like how he interacts with us, how he looks down on us from heaven. But here we see part of God, part that should change us. Why? Because you need to consider the fact Jesus knew what he was about to do. Let me explain that more. Jesus knew in this moment as he weeps at Lazarus's death alongside Mary and this crowd of Jews, Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why does he cry? Why does he cry? You see, this is not like Just a regular human being like you or me, mourning at the loss of a loved one, obviously, naturally, perfectly, understandably overcome with grief and sadness because they are no longer with us in this life. No, this is the Son of God who knows what is about to happen, who is all-powerful to raise people from the dead, and He is about to do just that. He knows how this ends, and yet still He weeps. You see, the pragmatist, for those of us who might be pragmatic, the pragmatist does not weep in this situation, right? It's like, guys, don't even worry about it. I'm about to fix this situation. Like, don't you know what I'm about to do? You don't need to cry. I'm about to make it better. It's like my little baby girl when she cries when I'm trying to put the t-shirt over her head and it gets stuck around her face. I'm like, it's about to come over. Don't worry. It's all going to be okay. There's no need for tears. No, that's not Jesus's response. He is deeply moved by Mary's grief and he weeps at the death of Lazarus, even though he knows it is only temporary and he is about to undo it. What does that say to you about the heart of God? What does that say to you about the compassion of our Lord and Savior? You see, when I preached that first point about how there's a bigger picture and, you know, Jesus is doing this for His own glory and the glory of the Father and for the disciples' belief, maybe that jarred with you a little bit. Like, like Jesus, that's a bit, you know, that's a bit hard to use a situation like this to those ends. That seems a bit heartless. Seems a bit indifferent to pain. What these verses show us, what this scene shows us, is that if you think God is indifferent when it comes to our pain and the effects of sin on our lives and and the effects of sin on this world at large, these verses shatter 
those assumptions. If you believe that God is unmoved by our grief and the reality of death and loss that touches all of us in this life, you are wrong. If you think his approach to our hardships, and maybe this one is going to mean something for you, if you think his approach to our hardships is purely pragmatic, don't worry, my son. Don't worry, daughter. Don't you know I'm using this for my glory to to make you more like you? Don't worry about it. You could not be further from the truth. You see, if anyone would have been justified not to react to Lazarus' death, it would have been Jesus. Because he knows. He is the only one who knows what's about to happen. But he weeps because he cares. You see, in Jesus, we do not meet a God who sits up in heaven detached from the brokenness of this world. We meet a God who sees our pain and is grieved by it, who weeps alongside us. But that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Come with me to verse 38 as we come to the third scene. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Verse 39, take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time, there is a a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Don't take away the stone, Jesus. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. You see, even after Jesus' claim that he is the resurrection and the life, the sisters don't yet fully understand what he means, nor do they anticipate what he is about to do. Remember that Mary was the one who Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Mary said, yes, Lord. But then here in this next scene, as Jesus says, take away the stone, that same Martha who had said that, she says, don't don't do it, Lord. Don't remove the stone because the stench of of the odor of my brother's body that's been decomposing for four days, it's going to come out. She doesn't yet fully understand what Jesus will do. Sometimes we're like that. Even in our faith, we don't see the full picture. We don't fully understand believe but Jesus demonstrates his union with the father 
and the power and authority that has been given to him as he commands Lazarus to come to life out of the grave. And out he comes. See, Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life, and he proves it by bringing a man who has been certifiably dead for four days back to life. See, part of the reason that Jesus waited two days is because in Jewish customs, when they would bury a body, they would give it at least three days after death before they kind of, you know, they were sure, yeah, they're definitely dead, right? We can put it on the birth certificate, sorry, the death certificate. This person has gone. And Jesus doesn't want to let this miracle perhaps be explained away. You know, this person wasn't really dead. We just made a mistake. They were just really sick. They fell asleep. Their pulse was really faint. We didn't realize. No, Jesus wants people to be sure this man was dead, but now he is alive. Lazarus' resurrection is definitive proof that Jesus' words are true. That he not only holds the power of resurrection, but that he himself is the resurrection and the life. Listen to these words from the New Testament scholar, Gary Burge. He puts it like this. He says, In other words, eternal life and rescue from the finality of death are not merely gifts obtained by appeal to God, so they're not merely things that we can receive by by asking God. They are aspects of what it means to live a life in association with Jesus. If Jesus is life, then those who believe in Him will enjoy the confidence and power over death known by Him. This is good news. This does not mean that Jesus' followers will not die a physical death, but that life will be theirs beyond the grave. They will not suffer death in eternity. Eliza, you can come up if you like. See, Jesus' miraculous act here proves that he has power over death. Like each of his I am statements, he makes a claim about himself and then he, he has a demonstration of authority and power. Saying this is not just metaphorical. I don't just mean this in this kind of intangible, like philosophical, detached, spiritual way. No, this is real. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me... Though you might die in this earthly life, you will live. And when I bring you back to life, you will never die again. And so if you're a Christian here today, if you are here this morning and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you this morning that there is comfort in this word for you. That there is assurance in Jesus' claim and His demonstration of power for you. And I want to remind you that this is your, this is our greatest hope. You see, our greatest 
Hope is the fact that the God that we believe in, the God that we follow, the God that we worship does not bow to the powers of death and the grave, but rules and reigns over them. And that through Him, so too can we. And I think one of the pitfalls of the Western church is that we live such comfortable lives and we have so many things and we can fall into this trap of talking about Jesus as a life enhancer, like He's a supplement. Like a little bit of Jesus and maybe you'll be a bit happier and a little bit of Jesus and maybe you won't feel so lonely and maybe a little bit of Jesus and you get welcomed into this warm community. He's going to answer some of your prayers. And we preach Jesus and we talk about Jesus and we love and celebrate Jesus for the things that He gives us in this life. And I'm not saying those things are bad things. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate those things or give thanks for them or tell people about the benefits that knowing Jesus brings our life now. But our single greatest hope is not in the fact that Jesus makes our lives now better, but that He gives us a whole new life and literal, physical, eternal life in the physical resurrection to come. That's our message. Not follow Jesus and, and He'll enhance your life. No, follow Jesus and you will have eternal life. A resurrection life that He has won for us by being raised to life Himself after dying on a Roman cross in our place as a sacrifice for our sin. That resurrection life is our greatest hope. And maybe you need to be reminded today that that is not a metaphor. That is not symbolic imagery. Like in this new agey sense of like, believe in Jesus and you get all this life in your life now. Like, no, it is a real, literal, tangible, physical life to come that lasts forever, that is indestructible. That is as real and tangible as Jesus himself. So Christian, remember that. Let that fuel you. Let that be your source of hope and endurance. Don't lose sight of it. Because when we lose sight of this, this glorious future reality, we lose sight of the single most powerful source of hope and endurance and motivation that we have in this life to live faithful, sacrificial lives with and for Jesus. And if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, perhaps you, you wouldn't identify as someone who follows Jesus. Or maybe you don't really know exactly where you're at on that journey. Maybe you've been dabbling in this church thing, in this Jesus thing, and you might still have some questions. You have some thoughts. You're on a journey. I want to say to you that this reality that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, this is also your greatest hope for the future. And it is a hope that comes to you in the form of an invitation, one who holds out this invitation to you and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Will you believe in me? Will you believe in me and live forever? 
And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the question for you is, how will you respond to His invitation? Will you dismiss it? Will you ignore or reject His invitation? Or will you respond like Martha, who believed and said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. So if you want to bow your heads, close your eyes, what I'd love to do in this moment is just pray a prayer and lead us in a prayer. And this is for anyone who you might be in that boat where you're on this journey, you've been thinking about this. You wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you want to put your trust and hope in Him for the first time today. I want to pray this prayer for you. And so if that is you, why don't you pray this prayer alongside with me in your heart. It says, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior from this day on. Amen. So we're going to transition now into a time of worship. Why don't you stand up to your feet? And I want to encourage you that if you are here this morning, you prayed that prayer for the first time. I want to encourage you to, to make that known to someone. You just made the best decision you could possibly make in your life. You joined yourself to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And we would love to journey alongside with you and help encourage you in your faith. But let me pray for all of us and let's respond by worshiping. Father, we thank you that you sent your son for us. We thank you for his words, Lord, but not only his words, but his demonstration of power that he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus, that you did raise Lazarus from the dead and you have risen yourself, Lord, that those who believe in you might not perish but have eternal life. And so, God, I pray that you would remind us of this hope that we have. I pray that uh, you would comfort us, Lord, uh, in our suffering, in our grief, perhaps in our loss this morning, Lord. I pray that you would help us not to lose sight of the fact that one day we will be resurrected with you. Though we may taste death in this life, we will be raised to life, an indestructible life with you. And would this strengthen us, Lord, to walk with you all our days, to participate in your mission, to endure, Lord, in faith. So we want to worship you now. We thank you for your goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.